last few weeks we have been in this series called Against the Tide. Against the Tide. We've been going through the book of Colossians. Colossians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city Colossae. And today we're going to finish up that series. I'm super, super excited. Uh, the title of my message, if you're taking notes, is Open Doors. Open Doors. I'm going to read Colossians chapter 4. It's only going to take about a minute, so track with me, okay? And then I'm going to pray, and we're just going to dive right in to this message this morning. Colossians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 2. This is what the scriptures say. This is Paul writing to the church in Colossae. He says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on which account I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you ought to answer each person. Tychus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Luke, or uh, I'm sorry, verse 13, for I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Abba, Father, thank you so much for this beautiful opportunity to come together as a community of Jesus followers and just hear your word. I pray that you would uh, speak to us so profoundly this morning, Jesus. I pray that you would open up our eyes to see your goodness, that you would open up our ears to, uh, ears to hear your voice. You'd open up our hearts, Jesus, and you would transform our lives this morning. We give you everything that we have and everything that we are, and we love you. Speak to us today in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, when I was 19 years old, I went to Beijing, China for two weeks. I, I taught English at this university called Peking University. And then on the weekends, we would drive to this orphanage and actually uh, throw kind of a summer camp type of experience for students out there. It was a profound venture. And I admit that my 19-year-old self was extremely in over my head multiple times throughout the trip. In fact, this feeling of being in over my head started immediately. Like we landed in Beijing around 4 a.m. California time. We had a 14-hour flight, so we were all just so, so hungry. We connected with the local missionaries immediately. They took us out to dinner at this place called a hot pot. And essentially, it's like fondue, except each person has their own like specific bowl of boiling hot water. And then you have a platter filled with like vegetables. And I call it just mystery meats. Like I have no idea what kind of meat was on that platter, okay? And what you would have to do is you would take the meat, you would take the vegetables, you cook it in your own hot pot. You get the idea, okay? Well, we sit down, right? Again, 4 a.m. I'm so like jet lagged and discombobulated from just even the travel. We're in Beijing. And I have this terrible 
terrifying realization that I'm 19 years old and I have never used chopsticks before in my entire life. I mean, I'm looking at these foreign objects. I'm like, how do you pick up anything with this thing? So I'm like, I'm stabbing at the vegetables. And finally, I, I figure out how to pick up one of this, this piece of this mystery meat, right? And somehow the meat falls right on the table and yet my chopsticks fall right in the pot of boiling water. And I'm, I'm looking around trying to play it off and all the missionaries are kind of looking at me like, who brought this guy? This guy's a joke, you know? And I have to admit that 19-year-old Caleb wasn't much of an English teacher either. In fact, I was in charge of teaching American culture to the students there. And so I figured, hey, what's a great idea? How about we make music videos to convey American culture and I'll be the star in every single one of them, okay? And so, yeah, totally vain, okay? Lord, forgive me. Uh, and so the first music video we made was actually to the song Hero by Enrique Iglesias. There's just so much that doesn't make sense about that. Anyway, those students were really confused, okay? Um, it's terrible. We, 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 we did have a, a few free days when we were over there. So one day we went to the Great Wall of China. Another day we went to Forbidden City. Another day the Tiananmen Square. And one day we, we went to this like flea market in the heart of Beijing. So picture the ferry building marketplace in San Francisco, except like a hundred times bigger and a thousand times more chaotic. Like literally like every single shop had their doors wide open and the owners or the employees at each shop were literally yelling at the edge of their doors for you to come in. And they were like actually, like we were being physically like grabbed at, like everyone was trying to pull us into their shop. And I admit, man, I, I didn't want to be grabbed at. I didn't want to be yelled at. I did not want to uh, be like just, you know, assaulted to come into this shop, okay? The other thing I didn't want, I'll just, I'm just keeping it real, I didn't want to buy a pair of Nike shoes with the Nike logo upside down because that's like what everyone was selling. I was like, I'm just not into it. I'm just keeping it real, okay? I mean, I didn't want that. I was so overstimulated. I was so overwhelmed that I just put my head down and I tried to block out everything around me and not be touched and not be grabbed. And when I think about it, that's how most of us live our lives. We, we, we live our lives with our heads down, figuratively speaking. We are so completely immersed in our own lives, our own plans, our own agendas, our own aspirations. We are so fixated on not being bothered or inconvenienced or interrupted. And yet if we were to lift our heads, even for a moment, we would see that open doors are everywhere. Open doors are everywhere. And when I say open doors, what I mean is this, opportunities to encourage people, to be kind to people, to be generous with people, to embody the love of Jesus Christ for people, to actually point people to the only true source of peace and of hope in this world. You see, the first six verses that we just read of Colossians chapter 4 are dedicated solely to this idea of open doors. In fact, the Apostle Paul is concluding his letter to the church in Colossae, and this is his closing address, and he tells them essentially three things. The first thing he says is, pray for open doors. Like, like pray for open doors. Verse two, what's it say? It says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And then interestingly, the very next verse, verse three, Paul actually tells them what to pray for. He says this, he goes, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. You see, the reality is what you pray for is what you think about. And what you think about is what you pray for. And I gotta be, I'll be upfront. It's not a super profound thought, but it's super practical. It demonstrates for us this there is an intrinsic connection between our prayer life and our thought life. You see, the more you pray for something, the more mindful you will be of it. And that is why Paul is saying, pray for open doors. Pray for open doors. Pray for open doors. But then he says another thing. He says this. He goes, okay, so pray for open doors, but now look for open doors. Like, look for open doors. Because verse 2 continues. It doesn't end there. And it says what? Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Being watchful. You see, in order to be watchful in prayer, we have to realize that God actually wants to use us as the answer to a lot of our own prayers. 
I'll give you a couple of examples. I, 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 these are just things that I've, I've even encountered in my life. God, I just pray you'd encourage so-and-so. He's just so depressed today. He's just really discouraged. He's really down, right? Well, God may want actually me or you to be the person to shoot that person a text or an email or give them a phone call and actually encourage them. Or, or, or God, I just, oh, I just pray for this person. They're just struggling so much financially. And yet God may want you to be the answer to that prayer and actually take them out to dinner or write them a check or do something to take care of their need. I think this is what Jesus was actually getting at when he told his disciples in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37. He says this, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Another way to say that, open doors are everywhere, but the workers are few. So pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We have to understand that this verse is not meant to be read or understood passively. It starts with us. It starts with you. It starts with me. We are the laborers. We are the workers that God wants to send out into the harvest. So we have to start looking for open doors. As soon as we do, man, we're going to realize they're everywhere. We pray for open doors. We look for open doors. And then the third thing is we walk through open doors. Like we walk through open doors. Verse 5 says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Making the best use of the time. We have to actually walk through open doors. Our, our, our staff was down in Los Angeles this last week meeting with Pastor Chad Veach and, and the team at Zoe Church, and we had so much fun together, and it was such a beneficial time, too, just being able to meet with them. And one morning uh, while we were down there, we went to this famous donut shop, and they had all sorts of crazy donuts. I mean, they had, like, Oreo donuts, Fruit Loop donuts, like, Captain Crunch donuts, Cotton Candy donuts. Like, they had maple bars with just huge, thick strips of bacon on them. I mean, just <laughs> praise Jesus. Somebody's hungry. Uh, okay, but, but a whole bunch of different donuts, every single traditional donut you could even imagine. And so I walk in, and the first thing I see, I mean, seeing all these crazy donuts, right, but I see this entire wall, like, there was an actual actual display of vegan donuts. Now, before you judge me, okay, no judgment, all right, no judgment zone. This is church, okay? I love vegan donuts. Like, they are the most delicious thing on the planet, okay? And I have to admit, I'm not even a vegan. I'm just keeping it real. But those vegan donuts are something else. They're just so dense and cake-like. It's just, anyway, I could preach a, a message on vegan donuts, okay? So I, I, I go into the shop, and I see this wall of vegan donuts, and I'm like, glory to God in the highest. I start doing a little dance. I start doing a little praise break. And I notice that Pastor Tyler's, like, right here. And then to the left of even Pastor Tyler, we have this, like, father and son that we've never seen before in our entire lives and they're literally looking at me their jaws up, like I'm some freak like I'm an alien or something they're like who is this guy he's doing a dance at vegan donuts right now like what is what is happening right now and so pastor Tyler he we, we know how funny he is we know how witty he is so he looked at me and then he leans over to the father and son and he goes vegans are crazy man <laughs> and so I just embrace it I'm like hey why not I'm a vegan today you know and so I I look over it, then I'm like, whoa, you know, I mean, I, I do kind of a crazy look. I throw up my trademark peace signs because I literally don't know how to take a picture without doing this. Pray for me, okay? But, but I'm literally like, whoa, and, and I'm not going to lie, that father and son left that donut shop like right away. <laughs> They're like, we got to get out of here. This place is dangerous. Like, let's get out. But if you know me, if you run in one of my circles, man, I'm talking about vegan donuts all the time. I mean, we have staff meetings and Pastor Tyler is always like, man, how can we make Mission Church better? And I'm always like, vegan donuts, next question, okay? I mean, that's just, let's do it, right? I just love it, right? And I'm like this with anything I like. Like, I know I'm already talking about how much I love vegan donuts, so I probably shouldn't even say this part, but my favorite movie ever is La La Land. I love it. I've, thank you. Come on. Okay, I've seen it like two dozen times. I have a problem. And uh, I love it. It came out a couple years ago, and when it first came out, I was like telling everyone, I was like, dude, have you seen La La Land yet? It is so good. And somehow now I'm still sneaking into messages. You know what I'm saying? I'm still talking about it. But I'm like this with anything I like. When I really like something, I become the greatest evangelist on the planet for it. And the truth is, we're all the same. 
We're all the same. C.S. Lewis, the great apologist, he puts it this way. He says, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite author, walkers praising the countryside, athletes their favorite game, praise of weather and wine and dinners and actors and colleges, just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Wasn't it magnificent? You see, when we experience something beautiful, when we experience something profound, when we experience something enlightening, something enjoyable, something transformative or helpful in any way in our lives, we want everybody to experience it around us. This is what we are talking about when we're talking about walking through open doors. This is what it's all about, wanting others to experience what we have experienced in Jesus Christ. Wanting others to experience what we've experienced in Jesus. I'll be real. I've experienced the peace that surpasses understanding, Philippians 4, 7. And I want everybody to, to experience it with me. I've experienced the hope that shines in the darkness and darkness cannot overcome it, John 1, 5. And I want everyone to experience it with me. I've experienced the joy of the Lord that's my strength, even in hard times, even in dark times, Nehemiah 8.10. And I want everyone to experience it with me. I've experienced the love that makes me more than a conqueror despite my circumstances, Romans 8.37. And I want everyone to experience it with me. I want people, everyone, to experience what I've experienced in Jesus Christ. And so I pray for open doors, and I look for open doors, and I walk through open doors. And this is the gist of what Paul is communicating in the first part of Colossians chapter 4. We got to pray for open doors. We got to look for open doors. And then we got to walk through them. But there's a problem. I'm just keeping it real. There's a problem. And here it is the church is infamous for closing doors, not renowned for opening them. Our reputation is one of closing doors rather than opening them. When I was a senior in high school, I was in AP English. And we had a decent amount of homework throughout the summer. And one of the assignments was to read the book Wuthering Heights and write a reading journal on it. And what that means is essentially you read a chapter and then you draw an illustration from that chapter and then you write a short essay summarizing the content of the chapter. And, and I admittedly procrastinated until two weeks before school started. And by that time, man, I was immersed in football. Like our first game was coming up and we, had, we were in the thick of two-a-days. I mean, the last thing on my mind was Wuthering Heights and this AP English assignment. And so I'm like, I'm painfully just trying to do it. And I find I finally get to this point where I convince myself that my teacher, Mr. Hess, would never actually read all of these journals. I was like, man, we got over 50 kids in this class. There's no way he's reading through every single one of these reading journals. And so I just start drawing random pictures, like pictures of mountains and trees and pictures of me beating everyone in track. I mean, literally everything that was coming to my mind, okay? And then I would write just random stuff. I remember writing about, like, religion and politics and celebrity gossip and the juice around school. I mean, I was just, I was making stuff up. And, and I'll never forget one entry. It was late one night. I was having this, like, midnight snack. And so I decided to actually draw a picture of that late-night snack. And then this was what I wrote underneath it. Don't judge me. This is church, okay? This is what I wrote. I said this, Mr. Hess, you and I both know that you will never read this. There, it gets worse. It gets worse, okay? Like, buckle up, all right? Prepare yourself. Mr. Hess, you and I both know that you will never read this. There is no way you're going to read all of these journals. So just give me an A, and I will be on my way. Love, Caleb. <laughs> Woo! I was pretty audacious, okay? And so I turned in the assignment. I was like, man, there's no way he's going to read this. I come to school the first day, and we have assigned seating, and everyone's journals are on their desk except for mine. 
And I like, my heart starts to race a little bit. I'm like, I'm trying to block it out. I'm like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be good, you know? And so I sit down and Mr. Hess gets up on the, uh, you know, in front of the classroom and he's like, he goes, hey, everyone did such a, such a wonderful job on your reading journals. I'm just so proud of all of you. And there was one journal in particular that I just really, really enjoyed. And I mean, I was dying inside already. I was like, oh, he's talking about me right now. <laughs> you know? this, was, this was the days, by the way, of the old school like overhead projectors where you had to have like that transparent like sheet or whatever, and then would pop it up on the, on the screen for everyone. He literally had taken the time and the energy and the effort to print out the, my reading journal onto this transparent sheet, and he projected it in front of the entire classroom, and he starts reading. Mr. Hess, you and I both know that you will never read this. And he just keeps going on and on. And I'm just dying inside. I mean, I'm like sweating and everything. He did give me a C minus for creativity, so I'll take it. Come on. <laughs> Woo! I'm not trying to justify it. Thank you for the clap. C minus ain't that great, but thank you. I appreciate it, okay? Wasn't my proudest moment, but here's, here's the connection. A lot of us think that we can get away with not being kind. A lot of us think that we can get away with not being merciful. A lot of us think that we can get away without being gracious or patient with people. We think that a mean look or an angry honk or a passive-aggressive text or email, a rude comment on Instagram, we think that those things don't affect people, but man, they affect people so much. Most of the time, it's the very thing that's actually being thrown up onto the projectors of their minds when they go to sleep at night. We have to understand this, that doors close so easily. Doors close so easily. And Jesus has told his church over and over again in this book to open doors, not to close them, to build bridges, not to burn them. That's what the church has to do. And that's what our reputation must become. The apostle Peter tells his church in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. And then the Apostle Paul says very simply in Colossians 4, 6, we already read it. He says, when you walk through open doors, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. What an interesting statement. He's essentially saying, man, we got the best meal on the planet for people. It's called the gospel. But if we throw bitter herbs on top of it, it spoils the flavor. We have to make Christianity attractive to people. And I, I want you to get this. Everything that you do either makes Jesus more or less attractive to people. Everything you do either makes Jesus more or less attractive to people. Everything you do either opens a door or closes a door. And we got to be a church that opens doors for people. Can I hear an amen? amen? Come on. Verse 7 of Colossians 4, Paul transitions into his final greetings, a series of shout-outs to people that he loves and wishes to acknowledge publicly. At first glance, I'm just going to keep it real, sections like these in Scripture seem so monotonous, even pointless. You, I, I'm sure even when I was reading it this morning, you're like, this guy's preaching from this? Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, Why did he come to church today? I mean, we, we think, like, why is this even in Scripture? And yet, if you dig a little deeper, man, there is so much depth there. There is so much beauty there. There is so much significance there. You see, in these verses, Paul gives us three examples of doors that he prayed for, that he looked for, and that he walked through. And I believe that these examples can actually help inspire us today. You see, we learn three things from him right away in this, script, in, in this section. The first thing is we learn that the gospel is the door to freedom. It's the door to freedom. The second thing is that the gospel is the door to forgiveness. To forgiveness. And the, 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 the third thing is that the gospel is the door to fulfillment. And those are my three main points today. Let's start with the first. The gospel is the door to freedom. The gospel is the door to freedom. In verse 9 of Colossians 4, Paul says this. He says, I have sent with him Onesimus. 
Our, faith, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So right away, we think this question, what has taken place? Like, what is Paul actually getting at? What is he talking about? Well, Onesimus was a slave to a man named Philemon. Philemon was an influential business owner, a follower of Jesus. The story goes that Onesimus embezzled a significant sum of money from his master, and then he ran away as a fugitive with the money. And somehow, we're not told how exactly, Onesimus actually ran into the great apostle Paul while he was in prison. And Paul saw his open door, walked through it, and Onesimus actually received the life-changing love of Jesus and became a follower of Christ. Paul became his mentor and eventually told Onesimus, hey, you need to make things right with Philemon. And yet so powerfully and so profoundly, it was actually Paul who made things right on Onesimus' behalf. You see, Paul writes a letter to Philemon. It's this tiny little book in the Bible in the New Testament called Philemon. There's only one chapter in it. That's why it doesn't even have chapter markers. It just has verses. And this is what he says to Philemon. Philemon, verse 8, starting in verse 8, this is what Paul says. He says, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake. I just want to pause there for a second. These words are actually, they're circled. They're underlined and circled, which means they're super holy, right? In, in, in my Bible. And this is, thank you for the one laugh. I got my back, come on. Yet for love's sake. I, I just, I, I love this phrase. I, I read it and I think about this, man. How many arguments could be prevented? How many frustrations could be diffused? How many friendships could be saved? How many relationships could be restored if we just paused beforehand to think? For love's sake. For love's sake. So Paul says in verse 9, he says, For love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you. Oh, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And if you skip to verse 17, Paul says, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Man, what a powerful picture of the gospel. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. What a profound picture of the gospel. Our sins, which if you're new to church, sin is this word that just means to miss the mark. It refers to our deliberate rebellion. It refers to our sinful propensities. It even refers to our mistakes. Our sins drove a wedge between us and God. And until we encounter Jesus Christ, we spend our lives running from one thing to the next, trying to find freedom from the shame that haunts us, from the fear that paralyzes us, from this achy and numb feeling inside of us that tells us there has to be more to this life than what we experience. And yet Jesus, he stepped into human history. And when he did, he said, everything Caleb owes, all of the messes that he has made, because God knows I've made my fair share of them, all of the debts that he owes, I will repay. Charge it to my account. Jesus went to a cross for me and for you and for all of humanity. And now because of the cross, Jesus says, you have my very heart just like Paul said of Onesimus. And because of the cross, God is now our loving father, our good, good father, as we just sang this morning. And we can go directly to him with any need or request or concern. Because of the cross, we can stop our endless striving and running around to free ourselves and rest in the reality that we are loved by God, not for what we do, but for whose we are, for the fact that we're his. Because of the cross, man, we are chosen, we're called, and we're useful in God's sight. We're useful. So interesting, that word. When you study Colossians chapter 4 in the Greek, the original language that it was written in, you find out that 
Onesimus, his name literally means useful. Useful. It's so interesting to me. Paul is, he's literally playing on words here. He says, Philemon, I know Onesimus, whose name means useful. He's been the very opposite for you. He's actually been a lot, he's been really useless. But guess what? Not anymore. He's encountered the freedom of Jesus Christ, and now he has so much to offer the world. A few years ago, I, I saved up for my first pair of fancy shoes. I'll just call them fancy shoes. I like shoes. I can have at least one fashion illustration per message, right, without judgment? Yes, yes, church, come on. Tough crowd, tough crowd, okay? Hey, it took me six months, and don't judge me. Everyone spends money on something, okay? I was super pumped about these shoes, and I finally I call my best friend. I'm like, bro, we're hitting up Rodeo Drive, and it's about to go down. And so I, I, I buy these shoes, and I put them in my closet, and a week goes by, and I just look at them. I'm like, oh, yo, what's up, shoes, you know? And, and yet I don't touch them. I don't wear them. Two weeks go by, and they're still in my closet. Three weeks go by, and they're still in my closet. I was, like, so afraid to take those things outside. Like, I didn't want anything to happen. I was like, man, what if somebody spills coffee on me? What if I spill coffee on me? That'd be even worse, you know? What if somebody, like, steps on me, scuffs them? Like, what if it rains all of a sudden? I mean, I would literally check the weather report, and if it said a 5% chance of rain, I was like, well, I ain't wearing these shoes today. You know, these things are staying safe in the closet, okay? I mean, like, there's no way, right? And so finally, I had to come up with this stupid phrase I just admit it, this is me just being real, just being vulnerable. I came up with this little phrase where every time I buy a pair of shoes or a, a fancy shirt or something, I like fashion, don't judge, okay? But every time I would do something like that, I, I literally would have to tell myself, okay, I bought it to wear it. I bought it to wear it. Like, even if it rains on it, it's okay. I bought it to wear it, okay? It's really lame. And all of you guys are like, dude, this guy's weird, okay? But Pastor Tyler, he, 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 he preached this incredible message last week about taking off the clothes of our shame, of our insecurity, of our obligation, of our fear, of our bitterness, and dressing ourselves in the newness of Jesus. And I want to add to that thought today and say that we have the attire of heaven in our closet. Like literally, in our closet, we have everything that heaven has to offer Man, we have robes of security, we have power, we have authority, we have grace, we have freedom. And yet so many of us, we're just looking at it. We're not putting it on. We're still wearing our robes of guilt and shame and condemnation, of fear and insecurity and worry. And Jesus is like, it's in the closet. I, I bought it so that you could wear it. I, I bought freedom so that you could actually wear it. I bought grace so that you could actually wear it. I bought love so that you could actually wear it. Put it on. Take off your shame and put on that freedom. Can I hear an amen, church? And here's the, here's the best part. Jesus isn't even tricking us. He's not even tricking us. Come on, I love that. I love that thought. Galatians 5.1, what does it say? It says, for freedom, Christ set us free. It's for freedom. For freedom's sake. Man, it was literally so that we could just be dressed and robed in the attire of heaven. That's why he came. In John chapter 8, verse 38, if the Son sets you free, man, you're really free. Don't let anyone tell you you're not. What's so incredible is that the story of Onesimus has just the most profound ending. And, and I have to provide this disclaimer. This isn't actually, the, the ending's not found in Scripture, but it is found in letters from the early church. So this is all according to church history, what I'm about to say. But there was an early church father named Ignatius, and he wrote some really profound works, and one of which, he, he wrote this letter, and in this letter, he actually references a man named Onesimus. And attached to the title Onesimus is this, Bishop of Ephesus. Bishop of Ephesus. Now, a little, a little bit of context. Ephesus was the first megachurch in the ancient world. 
Like, like it was the, the OG of explosive church growth. I mean, the apostle Paul planted the church. His mentee, Timothy, who has two books of the Bible named after him, he took over the church. Even the great apostle John was an elder at that church. And according to church history, you have this runaway slave. You have this fugitive who encounters the freedom of Jesus Christ and becomes the senior pastor of the biggest church in the ancient world. <laughs> the gospel is the door to freedom regardless of who you are or where you're at today. And the second thing we learn from Paul in this section is this, that the gospel is the door to forgiveness. The gospel is the door to freedom, and the gospel is the door to forgiveness. In verse 10 of Colossians 4, Paul continues his shout-outs, and he says this. He says, My fellow prisoner greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, who's this guy, Mark? His full kind of name, you could say, is John Mark. And John Mark was a companion of the apostles uh, Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary trip. And we know a little bit more about him, too. Some theologians actually think that the Last Supper occurred at his parents' house. They think this because in Acts 12.12, we're told that the early church actually often gathered together at John Mark's parents' house for just prayer and for worship services. We do know that the apostle Peter and John Mark were super close. In fact, fun fact, the Gospel of Mark is actually Peter's version of the Gospel story. So Peter told John Mark what to write. John Mark dictated it, and that's actually why it's even titled the Gospel of Mark. Now, what's interesting is there's this random detail in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14, verse 51. This is what the scriptures say. It says, a young man followed Jesus in context. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed. This was the garden. This was Good Friday, okay? A young man followed Jesus with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, I have to admit, that's one of the weirdest verses in the Bible. And every time I, I, I read through it, I'm like, what in the world? This is in the eternal word of God. You know, I'm like, Lord, what are you doing? You know, what, what are you trying to say? Well, most theologians actually think that this is autobiography here. Like John Mark was actually writing himself in this story because he was there that night in a very unflattering way. But he was actually there. He was in the garden. You see, I picture it this way. John Mark was the kid who grew up in church, went to a Christian school, was at every single youth event, every single church service, and man, he just lingered. Like wherever the pastor was, he was kicking it. He just grew up in the presence of God. And yet in Acts chapter 13, 13, we are told that during the first missionary trip, John Mark actually left Paul and Barnabas and went back home. And we don't know why. Maybe he was overwhelmed by the weight of vocational ministry. Maybe he just really, really missed home. Maybe it was a temptation. Maybe it was a moral failure. Maybe it was just burnout. We have no idea why. All we know is that for some reason, he quit. For some reason along the way, he quit running the race. He quit on his mentors, and he quit on his friends. And we know this, too, that Paul was so upset and hurt by this that three years later, Paul and Barnabas are planning their second missionary trip. And Barnabas is like, dude, John Mark is back. We got to get him in on this. We, we, we need John Mark. And Paul goes, nope. And he disagrees so vehemently, so passionately with Barnabas that him and Barnabas, and they were homies, they actually split ways. And yet here in the letter of Colossians, in the book of Colossians, we read 10 years later, after all this stuff has gone down, Paul is talking about John Mark with such love and affection, saying, man, if he comes, you got to welcome him. And even another couple of years after that, when Paul is writing his last recorded letter called 2 Timothy, this is what he says. He says, get Mark, get John Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Man, I'll be real. For almost 15 years, Paul missed out on relationship with John Mark. 15 years, he missed out. Man, bitterness is such a thief, isn't it? 
It's such a thief. Like it steals our time and energy from us and we can never get that back. It steals our joy and peace from us and we can never get that back. It steals our freedom and our hope. It steals our closeness and our relationship. Jesus warns us in John 10, 10, man, the thief comes to do one thing, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I think the easiest way for the enemy to accomplish this is this, by just keeping us bitter, by locking us up in bitterness and in unforgiveness. C.S. Lewis, in one of the most profound essays that I've ever read, he says this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Whoa. And if we can just get even more real this morning, so many of us, and again, I hope you know everything I'm saying today, I'm preaching it myself too, but so many of us, we're, we're so bad at actually forgiving other people, and yet somehow we're even worse at forgiving ourselves, aren't we? Like we were down in L.A. this last week, as I already said, and we were meeting with the, the whole team at Zoe for the week, and it was just, it was so fun. It was so beneficial, and we actually got to sit in on one of their staff meetings, and it was a cool worship time, and then Pastor Chad Veach came up, and he, he gave this, this word for us, gave this teaching, and it was just so profound. It's such a great word, and in, in it, this is, he, he mentioned this. He said, so many of us, man, we think that God is just so offended, so just angry, so disappointed. He's just so offended by our impurities and our weaknesses and our downfalls, but then he said this, and it actually surprised me. It caught me off guard. He said this. He goes, a lot of times I think God's just like, I'm just offended by your inability to love yourself. Oh, <laughs> those words got me. And he kept going. He said, man, I got, I got kids and I would never let anybody talk bad about my kids. And yet, what does the scripture say? It says that we're God's children. And that's 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says that we are, we are God's children. And yet, what do we do? We destroy ourselves with our words. We destroy ourselves with our thoughts. We destroy ourselves, and God's like, no, that's not how it should be. Man, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret this morning. This is me being vulnerable, and, and the whole reason for my vulnerability, too, is hopefully it can free you. Hopefully it can kind of encourage you, but the biggest thing I struggle with in life, man, I'm just keeping it real, is feeling like I'm not enough. I, I just feel like I'm not enough. Like, my entire life, I've struggled with it. Like, I'm not good enough. Like, I haven't accomplished enough in my life. Like, I'm not maximizing my time well enough, even right now. Like, I haven't made God proud enough. Like, I don't have enough faith. Like, I'm not close enough to him as I want to be. I mean, the list could go on and on. And yet, the older I get, the more I realize that I'm not the only person that struggles with that. Man, Timothy Keller, one of the greatest apologists of our generation, he says this. He calls that feeling, he calls it the inner murmur of self-reproach. The inner murmur of self-reproach. It's this constant nagging at our souls that says, you're not enough. You're not attractive enough. You're not good enough. You're not successful enough. You're not smart enough. You're not rich enough. You're not influential enough. The list could go on and on, and yet we read the gospel, and what does the gospel say? It says it's not about being good enough, because while we were still sinners, while we had absolutely nothing to offer Jesus, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus came to communicate a simple and yet profound message that no one is disqualified from his love, that no one is disqualified from his grace, that no one is disqualified from his forgiveness. It doesn't matter what your weaknesses are. It doesn't matter what your struggles are, your past is, your mistakes are, how complicated your relational history is, how deep and heavy your emotional baggage is. Man, you need to understand this, that you are not disqualified. You are loved by God, you are chosen by God, you are accepted, and you are forgiven in Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus, God looks at you and he's like, oh, that guy right there, that girl right there, oh, they're so much more than good enough. Man, I choose them and I love them. Can I hear an amen, church? But we will never be able to lead others through the door of forgiveness until we first walk through it ourselves. We have to learn how to love ourselves.
As the scriptures actually tell us to and how to forgive ourselves. The, door, the gospel is the door to freedom. The gospel is the door to forgiveness. And then third, the gospel is the door to fulfillment. The gospel is the door to fulfillment. The worship team can come up on this point. In verse 17 of Colossians chapter 4, Paul, he's, he's writing, right? And he's, he's continuing his shout-outs. And it's so funny to me because it's like he finishes all of his shout-outs. It's like he's, he's wrapping everything up. But then he, it's almost like he forgot one last shout-out. And he says this. He goes, Colossians 4, 17, and say to Archippus, don't forget, don't forget to say this to Archippus. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Archippus was Philemon's son, the guy we talked about a little bit earlier. And most theologians think that this comment refers to Archippus making sure that Paul's requests of Philemon actually come to fruition. At the end of the day, we're not 100% sure. My imagination tends to think this way, that maybe Archippus had a dream. Maybe he had a longing inside of his heart. Maybe he had a passion inside of his soul, and Paul knew about it, and Paul wanted to make sure that he went for it. Man, for the sake of keeping it real, I wonder how many of us are sitting on dreams that God gave us long ago. Man, I wonder how many of us are trying to suppress the desires and the passions that are inside of us rather than realizing that those things are actually from God and we're actually meant to go pursue them. I wonder how many of us are, we heard from God, we heard God's voice, we heard God speak to us, something to us, and yet we haven't had the courage or the discipline or the faith to actually step out and fulfill the ministry that we have received in the Lord. I love what Pastor Judah Smith, he's one of my heroes, he says this, he says, there are no unemployed people in the body of Christ. What a cool thought. There are no unemployed people in the body of Christ. Man, every single one of us, we have a role to play. We have a job to do. We have a dream to chase. We have a ministry to fulfill. And the Lord is cheering us on. He is for us. And he is telling us this. Go for it. Go for it. Tahoe is uh, one of my favorite places on the planet. Anybody else with me? Isn't Tahoe just the best? So a couple... I got a clap. Thank you. Amen. Um, so a couple of years ago, I uh, went up there with a, a church I was working out. Our entire staff had to retreat up, up in Tahoe. And we decided to actually rent out a boat one day and just cruise around the lake. And it was just a perfect day. Like, just picture the most perfect day in Tahoe. I mean, clear skies. Temperature was perfect. Light glistening off the water. Sorry, I get all poetic here. Uh, but, I mean, it was just, it was awesome. It was perfect, right? And we're cruising down the lake. We get into Emerald Bay. And it's very typical and cliche for a church staff. We're blasting the new Bethel album, the new Bethel worship album okay we end up like just kind of chilling there for a little bit posting up we're eating our lunch and just hanging out and finally I get a little antsy I'm like man I gotta go do something you know and so I'm looking at the island in the middle of Emerald Bay that little small island I'm like man I've never actually stepped foot on that island like I wonder where that is I was like today's the day and so I convinced one of our other staff members I was like hey you want to race me to the island let's go swim there like let's just swim I'll race you it's gonna be good he actually said yes and I was like sweet so I dive in and I just gotta admit I dive into this thing I go into this thing pretty arrogantly like this is me just keeping it real I'm like I run every single day of my life I, I, I feel like I'm in good shape I'm gonna crush this I'm obviously gonna beat this guy I am getting to that island and I found out very very quickly I was so wrong running is nothing like swimming by the way I found that out okay uh, I also found out how cold Lake Tahoe was that day and I figured wow that island is way further than I thought it was I mean so I, I start going into this thing and I'm going in it with everything I got and pretty quickly I'm like wow I'm tired I'm like so tired and I'm looking ahead of me and I'm like that island is still so so far away and then I'm looking behind me and I realize that the boat now is so far away and I don't have a floaty and I don't have a life jacket it's literally just me and so I 
I start to get a little panicky and I'm like, okay, I'm good, I'm good. I'm just gonna keep going. And so I keep going on my strength a little bit. I get a little further and then I'm looking up. I'm like, man, I don't seem, I don't feel any closer to this island. And I'm looking, I'm even further away from the boat now. I'm literally in the middle of it and my body's starting to shut down because the water is so flipping cold and I don't even know what to do now. And so I start to get panicky. I start to get anxious. I actually, as humiliating as it is, I start shouting at the boat. I'm like, help, help, come back. Throw me a life jacket. You know I mean? I'm literally like yelling at the boat, but their worship music is so loud. They don't even hear me. And so I'm like waving my like hands in the air, like, oh my God, like help, please. I'm dying here. And they still don't hear me. They're just eating their sandwiches, listening to their Bethel worship music. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me right now. You know? So I'm like, I'm starting to get even more panicky. And all of a sudden I go into this mode where I'm like, okay, you gotta survive. Like, you just gotta survive. And, and I've never felt that way in my entire life where I was like, man, how do I make it out of this situation? Like, I actually, I started to get so scared because I was like, I can't get anyone's attention. I'm literally halfway in between the water. I'm not even close to the shore and I'm not even close to the boat. And my muscles are literally shutting down because I'm so tired and I'm so cold. And all my energy now is like, okay, stay calm, stay calm, stay afloat. Okay, don't drown. You got this. You got this. And I figured in a one last ditch effort, man, I just, I, I let out this yell like I've never yelled before. I'm like, help, please, you know? And finally, thank God, somebody actually saw. And they turn off the Bethel music and they start ripping my way in the boat. And a couple of different guys jump into the water and like grab me and save me. It was the most humiliating day of my life. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm never going to be cocky again after today. <laughs> but I have to admit, it was also one of the scariest moments. And the more I think about it, there are people everywhere that feel just like that right now. All throughout Walnut Creek, all throughout Pleasant Hill, Concord, Danville, Alamo, Lafayette, everywhere, wherever you live, fill in the blank. People are drowning all around us. They're, they're, they're drowning in, in fear, they're drowning in anguish, they're drowning in despair, they're drowning in anxiety and worry and shame and guilt. And I'm, I'm just, I'm gonna keep it real and I wanna preface this next part by saying, I'm preaching it myself right now, by the way, too. So don't think I'm just coming at you. I'm, I'm coming at me too. Man, people are drowning and we're just so unaware, aren't we? Like, I get emotional to think about it because we're just in a boat, blasting our worship music, chilling in our own piety and our own religion, feeling great about ourselves because we worship to a song. And we don't realize that people are drowning all around us, that people need what we have. And Jesus is looking at us and saying, get out of the freaking boat and go save people. Go rescue people. Go jump into the water. Go make a difference. You're the answer. Open doors are everywhere and people are crying out. If only we would lift up our lives. Colossians 4. Paul gives another shout out. Chapter 4, verse 12. He says this. He says, Epaphras. Epaphras, fun fact, was actually the guy who planted the church in Colossae. He was like the OG. He was the founding pastor. And he's actually in prison too with Paul at the time. But he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And then he says this, verse 13, for I bear witness that he has worked hard for you. I read that the other day and I started thinking to myself, I was like, man, I want that to be said of me. That one day, the Lord would look at me and be like, man, I bear witness. Caleb, oh, he's worked hard for you. He, he's worked hard for Mission Church. 
for Mission College, for Walnut Creek, for California. He's worked hard for everyone that's crying out around him. May it be said of every single one of us. Church, we have the best news on the planet. The gospel is the door to freedom, to forgiveness, and to fulfillment. And open doors are everywhere. People are crying out. They're ready. Jesus, he he said to his disciples, he said, look up. The fields are ripe with harvest. The time is now. Man, we just got to pray for, look for, and then go walk through those open doors. Would you pray with me, church?